I invite you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. We're going to continue our, our series in the book of Hebrews, if you're just joining us. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew in front of you that you're more than welcome to use. And if you're looking in that Bible, the section we're looking at this morning is on page 1106. 1106 in the bluish Bibles in the pew. As you're turning there, just some encouragement. As we've been going through Hebrews, if you've been here, we've, uh, we've been talking about this guy named Melchizedek, and we're going to talk about him some more today. And just to, I was thinking about it this week, and you remember back in uh, chapter 5, it talked about how there's, he has much to say about this Melchizedek, and it's hard to explain, because some people become dull of hearing. They just, they don't want the solid food. They just they say, just give us the milk. Just give us the easy, light, fluffy stuff. I've been encouraged to not only observe from you, but hear from you that God is speaking to you through these texts, that you are engaging, that you're, you're, you're eating up this solid food, and we are being strengthened by it. And so I pray that would continue today, that God would continue to feed us with the solid food. So we're going to be looking at chapter 7, starting in verse 11 through the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar." For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. 
But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, this morning as we dig into this passage, I really thought, like, how, what's a word picture to try, to try to get our minds around what's going on here? And so here's the picture I want to try to paint for you, okay? All throughout the book of Hebrews, we've been talking a lot about how the life of faith is described as a journey to a destination. You, you heard it in some of the songs we sing. His, Thus far his love has led us, his love will lead us home. And there's this idea throughout the book of Hebrews that we're going somewhere. We're being brought to glory. We're on our way to a promised land of rest. That we're pilgrims on our way to a better country and a heavenly city. And this whole book of Hebrews, its intent is to help us get there. To help us hold on to the hope we have in Jesus that will get us home. Well, our text today, I think the lesson that it's teaching, fits that picture really well. So here's what I want you to imagine. We're talking about a road to the heavenly city. Now let's say this road to the heavenly city runs through just a stark and barren wilderness. Picture something like West Texas, somewhere out there where you can drive miles and miles and miles and not see anyone or anything. As you're driving along this road, for a second, you you leave the road thinking that, oh, maybe here's a shortcut. You're thinking, you know a better way. And as soon as you do, there goes a tire. You have a flat tire. So now, what are you going to do? Well, as you're stuck there, unable to continue down the road, you check your manual. That's good. You go to see what does the book say. And your manual tells you that there's a spare tire that's provided in the trunk. See, the maker of your car foresaw this type of scenario and provided a solution. They said, I I can see that happening, so when it does, there's a spare tire in the trunk. So you go and get the spare tire, but you realize this tire doesn't look like the other ones. This is just one of those donuts. It's smaller. It's not as thick as a normal tire. It even says right on there, don't drive more than 50 miles. That's all well and good, except... Your destination is still 300 miles away, and you've got a 50-mile tire. But here's the really good news. You know that there's a service station that sells tires 30 miles ahead. So you put this donut on, get it on your car, and you kind of continue on down the road, limping a little bit, but you, you get there. And when you get to this service station, you have a choice to make. You can choose to ignore the maker's warnings and try to make that tire do more than it was designed to do and say, oh, it's been fine so far. I think this tire will get me home. Or instead of trusting that spare donut tire, you can trade that tire for a better tire. Not just any tire. I don't know if you've seen these. They're self-sealing tires now. So that when you do run over something... Not only will you not get a flat, it, it inflates itself back up. So you will never need to replace this one again, at least in theory. So you've got a choice now. What do you do? Do you stick with the temporary solution that was never meant to get you home and isn't able to get you all the way to where you want to go? Or do you put your hope in a permanent solution that will never need replaced and never let you down? That's the choice you face at the service station. And that's what's happening in our passage. 
Only we're not talking about tires. We're talking about priesthoods. Specifically, we're comparing the temporary solution of the Levitical priesthoods, that's the priests in the Old Testament, and the perfect salvation offered by Jesus' priesthood. Our author is telling his readers to stop trying to make it home by relying on a system that was never meant to provide all that we need, but only get us to the real permanent solution we need. Okay, so that's what he's going to tell us. But to set the stage, let's do a quick recap. Back in chapter 6, at the end, he told us that we have this sure and steadfast anchor of our souls. And he said it's a hope. It's a hope that enters into the inner place where God is, behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. It said, having become a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so we've got this sure anchor of hope in heaven. Because Jesus has gone there for us and before us, and he's a priest like Melchizedek, it says. So last week, we, we asked the question, okay, that's great, except I, I don't know who Melchizedek is. So what does it mean that he's a priest like Melchizedek? What kind of priest was Melchizedek, and therefore what kind of priest is Jesus? And what we saw in the first 10 verses of chapter 10 is that he's a king priest, He's a king and a priest in one who brings righteousness and peace and he's the mediator of all our worship. We talked about how there was this scene with Abraham and what we took away, the most important thing was that all the blessings of God that he had promised to Abraham came to Abram through Melchizedek. The blessing of God came to him through Melchizedek and guess what? Abraham's worship went to God through Melchizedek. Blessings come through a mediator, a mediating priest, and worship goes to God through a mediating priest. And what we saw was that this Melchizedek was a completely different type of priest. He wasn't just another in a long line. He he broke the mold. He wasn't a Levite. So he didn't have his role by genealogy like the others. He had his own category. But we saw in Psalm 110, the only other place that this Melchizedek has mentioned, that David points forward to a coming king who would also be a priest. Normally they had to be separate, but he says, no, there's going to be one, there's going to be another priest coming who's going to be like Melchizedek. And you see that verse, it's actually in our passage twice. It's quoted in verse 17 and verse 21. So that brings us up to where we are now. And what we have here is the writer of Hebrews realizes that The fact that David promised there's going to be this another priest like Melchizedek, that raises a question that needs to be asked. It's a good and important question. He says, look, we've had Levitical priests for generations. Like my great-great-great-granddaddy had a Levitical priest. My great-great-granddaddy had one. My dad has one. My great-great-grandkids will have one. That's what we've had. Why do we need a different kind of priest? In the middle of all this Levitical priesthood, why would God promise? Why did he... Why did he see a necessity to say, hey, one day there will be a different priest? Why do I need a different one? That's the question that he asks in verse 11, and that I think the rest of the passage is trying to answer. So before we jump in, let me give you a little roadmap for how I think the passage breaks down. In verses 11 and 12, we're going to see that a change is needed. Something's not working. A change is needed. Then in verses 13 to 17, we're going to see 
a change has come. Then in verses 18 and 19, we'll see that that change that has come brings better hope. And part of that hope is a better priest. And so what we're going to see in the last several verses is three things. We're going to see in 20 to 22 that Jesus is a promised priest. And in 23 to 25, he's a permanent priest. And in 26 to 28, he's a perfect priest. Okay, so that's where we're going. We're going to see this this change that's needed has come, and it's better. And then we're going to see why is Jesus better. So look at verse 11. Here's the question that we have to answer this morning. I'll let the text ask it. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Okay, that's the question. The Bible itself is asking us, saying, why do we need another priest? Why do we need one in the order of Melchizedek instead of one in the order of Aaron? If the system's working, why would we need a change, right? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Well, the question is, was it working? Were the Levitical priests accomplishing what we needed them to? What does he say the priesthood is designed to help us attain? perfection that's what he's after he's saying if we could have what we needed and what did we need? we need perfection we need to be made perfect now what does that mean because we need to be careful we're going to use that language a lot this morning about being made perfect so here in this context what does it mean to be made perfect does it mean that you have every superpower that there's nothing you can't do that you become godlike? that's not what it means to be made perfect means to be made complete It means to be restored and made into what we were created to be. It means that we are now able to draw near to God and enjoy the relationship with him that we were intended to have. All throughout Hebrews, when it talks about being made perfect, he means that our sins have been forgiven. Our consciences have been cleaned. And we now have access to God. Being made perfect means we are being brought home to the heavenly city. And restored to our glorious roles as ruler priests with Jesus the Son that we saw back in chapter 2. So that's what we're after. This is, this is a lot, but you got to see what, what it is we're after. Because this whole thing is about we need someone who can make us perfect, who can do that. If the old system's doing that, we don't need anything else. But if it's not, we need a change. So we want to know how can we be made perfect like that and enjoy access to God without guilt or shame or fear? How can we draw near with confidence? That's what sparks the question in verse 11. He says, if all that's available already, why do we need another priest? If we could have all that, we wouldn't need one. And that's exactly his point. He's saying without saying that perfection was not attainable under Levitical priests. Their priesthood was inadequate and insufficient. Hear me, it wasn't bad. It just wasn't enough. It was kind of like a spare tire, only designed to get us to the tire store. In the same way, the Levitical priests were never designed to make us perfect, only get us to the priest who can. That's why we needed another priest after the order of Melchizedek, because the Levitical priest couldn't do the job. 
They were never intended to do the job. Now, what we need to know is if there's a new priest, that means there would be a change in the whole system of how we relate to God. That's what verse 12 is telling us. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. See, law and priesthood are linked. They're not independent of each other. They, they came at the same time, and they go together. Because priests are the ones who administer the law, and they serve according to it. The law's answers for how do you seek forgiveness and access to God all hinged on priests. They were central to the system. Without priests and the sacrifices they made, there was no way to be made right with God or live in a right relationship with him. So we needed a change. We needed a change in priest and a change in how we reproach God. What we needed was a priest who could actually make us perfect. Now in verses 13 to 17, he wants to show us that, hey, guess what? That change has come. And it's come in the priesthood of Jesus. And he shows us that by highlighting two ways that Jesus is a different kind of priest. He comes from a different line and he has a different life. Different line, different life. First, he comes from a different line. Look at 13 and 14. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. He's saying, look, Jesus didn't come from the priestly tribe of Levi. If you wanted to be a priest, that's the family you had to be in. But Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah, which is important because that's where kings come from, but not priests. He says, read your Bibles. Moses doesn't say anything about priests coming from Judah, which begs the question, okay, well, if Jesus is from the wrong family and he doesn't meet these qualifications to be a priest based on his family line, what does qualify him? If that's the thing that you had to be, you had to be a Levite and he's not a Levite, on what basis can Jesus be a priest? Look at verses 15 to 17. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So here the writer says, he says, look, this becomes even more evident. What's become even more evident? That a change has taken place. That there's a new priest in town. And he's not a priest based on a legal requirement like all the others. He's a priest on the power of an indestructible life. What qualified Jesus to be our priest is that he has life. A life that cannot be destroyed. Life that cannot be stopped. He died and is alive forevermore. That's why it is witness of him, you are a priest forever. Why forever? Because he has an indestructible life. Here's why this matters. Because what I love about this is that the, the author is pressing this in. He wants us to see, he's not just giving us esoteric information. Like, oh, that's really cool that you can ace the Bible trivia quiz. He wants us to see, how does this change your life? Why does this matter? And here's why it matters that Jesus is a priest on the basis of an indestructible life. Because a priest can only offer you whatever it is that 
qualify them to be your priests in the first place. Whatever it is that gave them the qualifications to be your priests, that's all they can offer you. Here's what I mean. On the one hand, you've got the Old Testament Levitical priests. What qualified them to be priests? Commandments. Legal requirements. Law. Outward bodily descent. So guess what those priests could offer people? Commandments. Legal requirements. Law. Belonging to an outward conforming group of people. But now, what qualified Jesus to be a priest? Power. Indestructible life. And guess what Jesus offers us as priests? Power and life. What power? The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, he says, is now at work in you believers. Power that doesn't just tell us how we ought to live, like the Old Testament priests. They could tell you according to law how you ought to live. Jesus does that and says, and I'm going to empower you to actually live that way. Power that makes us new people and changes us to be more and more like him. And not just power, life. Jesus, as our priest, offers life. What life? His life. Friends, if you are trusting in Jesus, you can say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He has given you life. And if we have his life, his life is indestructible. That's why later we'll sing, one with himself, I cannot die. Why do we sing that? How dare we say that? We say that because Jesus has become our priest by the power of an indestructible life. And now, as our priest, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And who, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. How can he say that? Because he has indestructible life. He cannot be stopped. So I'll ask you the same question that Jesus asked after he said that. Do you believe this, friends? We all will face death. Do you have a confidence that you can have an indestructible life? That nothing can separate us? Not death or pain or fear. Can you say that and mean it? Saying, I'm not afraid of death because I know one who has indestructible life and he's given it to me. That's what Jesus offers you. It can be yours. And that's why Jesus and his priesthood is far better than the old Levitical priesthood. Look at verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So here he's making it really plain and simple for us. He's holding up the two priesthoods side by side. He says, you've got your Old Testament priest and you've got Jesus. On the one hand, you've got the former commandment. And that commandment, that's the same word as legal requirement up in verse 16. So when he says the former commandment is set aside, he's saying the old priesthood, the old system they oversaw, the whole thing is set aside. The rituals, the sacrifices, the priesthood, set aside. Why is it set aside? Because it's weak and useless. It can't do 
what we need it to do. It doesn't help us with what we're after. And just in case we forgot, what are we after? Well, look what it says. Why does it call the system weak and useless in verse 19? For the law made nothing perfect. That's what we need it to do. That's what I need a priest. I can't do that on my own. I need a priest. And he's saying that priesthood can't do it. Therefore, it's weak and useless. It couldn't make us perfect and give us access to God. And here's the thing. The law and the priests and their sacrifices were never meant to make us perfect. They were never meant to carry us all the way home to God. They were simply donut tires provided by God to get us to Jesus. The former commandment was a temporary solution meant to point us to a perfect salvation. Just like a donut tire is a tire. You look at it, it's like, yep, it's round, goes on there. It does the same things to an extent. But you know, it's not the kind of tire you need. It's not strong enough or big enough. It won't last long enough for what you need. But it helps you get to the tire you need. One that is big enough and strong enough and lasts long enough. The one that's able to get you where you want to go. And where is it that we want to go? Look at verse 19 again. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Friends, what we're after, where we want to go, is near to God. That's who we were made to be with. We want to know Him, commune with Him, enjoy a real relationship with Him. We're not talking about formulaic, empty religion. We're talking about knowing God. Having a relationship where you know him and he knows you and and you talk to him through prayer and he talks to you through the word. We want that. And the old system of religion, it says, could never get you there. Why? Because it couldn't make you perfectly ready to be with God. It couldn't take away your sin for good or give you a clean conscience. But when Jesus comes along, he brings a better hope, a hope that's gone into God's presence behind the veil as a sure and steadfast anchor of our souls. And it's not just that Jesus has gone there. He's made a way for us to follow him there. All that would keep us from the presence of God, Jesus has taken care of. As our better high priest, Jesus made purification for sin. He's fulfilled every law that you and I have broken. He's died the death we deserve. Guilt is gone. Wrath is removed. The curtain is torn so that, why? What was the point? So that now we can come boldly to the presence of God. That's why he came as our priest, to bring us to God. Okay, so now we've seen that this change was needed. We've seen that a change was needed because this old priesthood couldn't do it. Couldn't make us perfect and make us able to draw near to God. But this change has come through the priesthood of Jesus because he's of a different line and a different life. And that means we have a better hope that allows us to draw near to God. We have a better hope because we have a better priest who can perfect us. Now, in the rest of the chapter, I think what he does is show us three ways Jesus is a better high priest, better than the Levites. So I said earlier, he's going to show us Jesus is a promised priest, a permanent priest, and a perfect priest priests so first he was a promised priest look at verse 20 again 
and it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So he's talking about the better hope we have in Jesus' priesthood, and he says it's better because it was promised with an oath. That's his claim right here. That's why the word oath shows up over and over. Oath, oath, oath. He says, Jesus' priesthood has an oath, theirs didn't. Now why does that matter? As I thought about it this week, this was really interesting to me, because what you have here is the idea of planned obsolescence. Planned obsolescence. Now, some of you have no idea what that means, but you know the idea. What that means is you buy a new cell phone. You buy a new computer. And when you buy it, man, that thing hums. It's just amazing what it can do. You're in awe. It feels like the battery lasts years before you got to recharge it. It's so quick. It can do anything you want it to do. And then time goes by and it slows down. Your battery doesn't stay charged. Before too long, it actually can't do what you need it to do anymore. Well, guess what? That's by design. The people who make the devices design them to become obsolete. Why? Because they want them to not satisfy what you need them to do so that you'll need to get another one. They plan for your device to be obsolete so that you'll look for a new one. And when you have a product that's designed to be obsolete... You know what you don't do? You don't offer a lifetime warranty. If I, as a manufacturer, know I only want this to last them mm, three, four years, I'm not going to give them a lifetime warranty that says in seven years, if it breaks, you can bring it back and I'll give you a new one. That defeats the purpose of why I designed it to be obsolete. I don't want it to last that long. I just want it to get it through to the next one and then the next one and the next one. That was the Old Testament priesthood. God never swore an oath about the Levites guaranteeing they'd last forever because he didn't intend them to. He designed them to become obsolete and unable to do what we need so that we would look for a replacement, so that we'd look for a better priest. How did we know there would be a better one? Because God promised us that a new priest would come. That's what God was doing in Psalm 110, which is quoted here in verse 21. When God made Jesus a priest, he did so by swearing an oath that he would be priest forever. He not only gave us a priest, he backed him up with a lifetime guarantee. God himself swore God himself swore that Jesus would be our priest forever. His priesthood will never become obsolete, will never wear out, and will never not quite work as well as it used to. Because God backed it up saying, there is no replacement. He's the one that I've been getting you ready for. That's why I'm willing to put my stamp on it. I'm putting everything I have. I, God, am swearing to you, he'll be your priest forever. You'll never need another one. That's the difference. He never said that about the Levites. Why? 
because he knew that he just wanted them to get it through so that, to create mental categories for what does a priest do? Why are they important? He says, all right, now that I just wanted to get you through to this one, I'm just giving you a donut tire to get you to the real thing. It's not meant to take you all the way home, just meant to take you to the replacement. And once you have him, he's the last one you'll ever need. This oath makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now the guarantor is the one who puts up his own possessions or sometimes his own life to guarantee that what is promised will be paid. So if you go get a loan from a bank and I act as your guarantor, I guarantee the bank that I will give whatever it takes to make sure they get what they've been promised. Yeah, you promised that you'd repay them, but just in case something happens on your end, I'm another level of security saying, I will make sure you get, bank, what you've been promised. And in the same way, Jesus guarantees all the blessings of a new and better covenant. When we take the Lord's Supper in a bit and we say, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, Jesus and his blood guarantee God's promise to us. He says, I'll do whatever it takes to make sure you get what you've been promised, even if it means dying on a cross. He can do that because he is our high priest promised with an oath, which is why we sang a little bit ago, his oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Because of this, because he's a high priest who's been guaranteed and promised with an oath. That's one way he's better. The second way he's a better priest is that he's a permanent priest. Look at verses 23 to 25. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Now notice the contrast. Many priests, one priest. They were temporary, he's permanent. They die, he lives forever. Friends, the point is if Jesus is your high priest, you will never need another. And why is that such incredible news? Because of verse 25. Notice he says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He says, because Jesus continues as a priest forever, he's able to save to the uttermost. He can save fully. He can save completely. He can save us to the uttermost time and the uttermost depth imaginable. He can save you for the next eight minutes. You say, I just need someone to get me through this morning. I'm having a rough time. He can save you for eight minutes. Or you say, you know what, I need, a, I need a good long stretch. He can save you for the next eight decades. And you know what, he can save you for the next eight centuries. He can save you to the uttermost length of time you can imagine. Why? Because he lives forever. And he can not only save you to the uttermost time, he can save you to the uttermost depth. He can save you in that hard-to-reach place in your heart that you think nothing can get in there. He can get in there. He can get into that part where you feel like, I'm so stuck. I don't know how anyone can save me in the most sinful place in me. He says, yep, right there. 
That's where I can save you. He can save absolutely all of you for all of eternity. And who can he save like this? Those who draw near to God through him. Friends, he's the only priest who can get us to God. So the question for all of us this morning is, do you want to know God? You say, I I do. Okay, do you want to know God better? Do you want to enjoy God? Do you want a heart that's thrilled by God? Do you want to taste his goodness and experience his gentleness? Do you want to know firsthand the mercy of God? Do you want to be wowed and awed and stunned by God? Do you want to feel the love of God? If you want to be close to God like that, if you say, I want to, I want to get closer, I want to know him better, I want to draw near, the only priest who can get you there is Jesus. So friends, if you're looking for anything else, if you're trusting another priest, you say, I wouldn't call that a priest, but if you're looking to anything else that can get you close to God, Anything else that can deal with your sins, make you a good person, and say, you know what, I think overall I'm doing okay. If there's anything else standing in that place, whether you want to call it that or not, that's your priest. You're saying, that's the thing I look to, the one I look to to say, you're okay. You've done the right things, jumped through the right hoops, you're okay with God, and you're okay in life. Nothing else will get you there, friends. Whatever this is, it will let you down because it doesn't last forever. It can't save you to the uttermost. If you want to know God that way, only going through Jesus will get you near to him. And as chapter 10 says, since we have a great priest like this over the house of God, what should we do? Let us draw near. Because Jesus is like that, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. He will get us home. Now you say, that's good news, but along the way home, it's hard. Pastor, I can believe, okay, yeah, he'll get me there, but you know what? Right now, the road is bumpy and rough, and I'm struggling to hold on. What do you have for me today? I need help right now. Because Jesus is your permanent priest, he always lives to make intercession for you. He ever lives and pleads for me and you. He's always able and always ready to help. Therefore, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near. So you know what Hebrews says earlier? Therefore, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You're like, I need that. I need grace. I need mercy. Right now is a time of need. This morning, I'm, I'm hanging on by a thread. Great. You know what you should do? Draw near through Jesus. Come through your priest. That's why he lives permanently. So that any time, any place, any situation, you can come to him and find him ready and able to help you and offer you the mercy and help you need. Friends, what a priest. Jesus is exactly the priest that you and I need, isn't he? Which actually brings us to the last way. Jesus is better than the Old Testament priests. He's promised, he's permanent, and finally, he's a perfect priest. Look at verse 26. For it was indeed fitting 
that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. I love this because it tells us, it tells us first how Jesus is absolutely sinless. He's holy, innocent, unstained by sin. Jesus never sinned. Always loved, trusted, and obeyed God. He was perfect. And it says it was fitting that we should have such a priest like that. Why is that fitting? Why is having a priest who's sinless fitting? Because it perfectly corresponded to our need. Just like you want to fit two things together, you say, oh, here's what I have. I need something that fits on it. We had a need, and the sinless Savior is exactly what we needed. Why? Because otherwise, our priest would always have to deal with his own sins and couldn't definitively deal with ours. He could never fully and finally get forgiveness for sinners because he needed sacrifices for himself. So it's fitting that we have a perfect priest who is perfectly sinless, unlike the Old Testament priest. Why? Verse 27. Because that means he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered of himself. It says because Jesus didn't need to offer sacrifices for himself, he could offer up himself as a sacrifice for us. He could pay for all of our sins because he had none of his own. Because the sinless Savior died, our sinful souls are counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. And I want to make sure, did you hear those beautiful words tucked in there? It says he doesn't need to offer sacrifices daily since he did this once for all. Oh, just... If you want to think about three words this week, think about once for all. Jesus died once for all, which means nothing more is needed. It is perfectly finished. Our great high priest has made the last sacrifice that will ever need to be made. When we were having Bible time as a family the other night, Anna and I were reading a story and I told her, aren't you glad that we get to sit on our couch and have Bible time each night and not like, all right, honey, it's time. Let's go in the backyard and kill the animals. There's a reason we don't do that. It's because the last sacrifice has been made once for all. And when Jesus offered himself, he paid for your sins, every one of them. That means the big ones and the small ones. That one-off sin that you only did that one time and you still can't believe you actually did that? You feel so horrible? That one? And that sin that you get stuck in day after day after day and you're like, why do I keep doing this? Once for all. He died for the sins that, that sneak out where people can see them and you feel, oh, I can't believe people know that. And for those sins that you've successfully kept hidden away. And no one knows. He died for that one too. Jesus offered a sacrifice for the sins of his people once for all. The perfect priest has offered a perfect sacrifice so we can know perfect forgiveness. And then in verse 28, he ties up our passage. He takes all the different threads we've been talking about. And they come together and we see a summary of why we needed a different high priest and why Jesus is a better one. Verse 28, 
For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. So think about what that verse says. The law appointed men in their weakness. What was their weakness? Their sinfulness and mortality. They all sinned and they all died. But Jesus, he says, is better. He is a promised priest appointed by oath. He is a permanent priest serving forever. And he has been made a perfect priest, perfectly fitted to our need and offering a perfect sacrifice so that we can be perfectly forgiven once and for all. He has been made perfect forever so that he can make us perfect forever. We found him. That's what we needed. The old one wasn't working. Only Jesus can do it. So on our journey home to the heavenly city, here's our takeaway. Let's not rely on any sort of spare donut tires of religion to get us home. But put on the indestructible tire. Don't look to temporary solutions. But run to Jesus for perfect salvation. Knowing he can and will get us home. Let's pray. Father, we we need Jesus. We thank you that you have given us a high priest perfectly suited to our need. So now as we move to a table to celebrate his work as our high priest, I pray that you would fill us with fresh amazement and joy and gratitude at what Jesus has done so that we can draw near. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So now as we observe the Lord's Supper, this is that. Like we talk about drawing near to God. God isn't here in any special sense. He's represented through the symbols of what we get to do. Because Jesus gave his body and his blood on the cross, he opened up a new and living way to God through his flesh so that you and I can come. Remember all that kept us apart from God. All our sin, all our failures, Jesus dealt with. And that's what we remember here, saying, because of what this symbolizes, I can draw near to God. I can know him. I can enjoy him. I can come to him with confidence and not with fear. I don't have to carry guilt and shame anymore. Instead, I can run to him knowing that he will accept me because of the cross. So that's what we're going to celebrate together. That's what we celebrate when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. If you're here and visiting and and you're not a believer in Jesus, friends, we're so glad you're here. We, We hope you ask lots of questions about this. I know it's a lot. If you've never heard about Jesus, ask questions. But we ask that you don't take part in this. This doesn't make any sense if if you don't believe the message this symbolizes. It's really not that good of juice and cracker. So it doesn't make sense for you to take it. But if you're here and you say, that's my hope. My hope is that before the throne, I have a great high priest who ever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. And I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. If that's your hope, we invite you to come. That's what we're going to do is we're going to sing a song together celebrating Jesus as our great high priest. And if you are wanting to partake, we ask one person from your household to come and grab enough for your family and just hang on to it. And I will lead us in taking it together after we sing a song. So let me pray and then we'll sing. Father, once again, we thank you for what this table symbolizes. 
Lord, may this not be an empty ritual right now, but would you fill it with fresh significance and meaning for our hearts today. Help us not take for granted the fact that we can come to you through Jesus. May we do so more and more, and may we find you better than we imagined. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.